It's Bolu. Bolio. Bolu. Bolio. How else could it be pronounced? It's French, I think. Bol like Bolu. Bolio. Excuse me. It's pronounced Bolu. What? It's a French meaning. Beautiful place. The story goes that when Mrs. Latour first saw the property that her husband had bought and not told her about it, had it all fixed up for her, landscape, paint, and everything, and when she saw the house, she exclaimed in French, Ah, quel beau you, which means beautiful sight, beautiful place. I see. Very cool. My name is Robert, and welcome to Boyu Vineyard Station Room in Rutherford area of Napa Valley. Four of Sip on This, the podcast that will bring you inside the wondrous experience of wine tasting. I'm Roger Chung, your co-host, and I'm glad to introduce again my brilliant co-host, Janae Gaither. Glad to be with you again, Janae. Glad to be with you too, Roger. Nice to see you, and nice to record another episode with you of Sip on This. Today is Sunday, September 8th, 2018, at about 2.15 in the afternoon, and it's about 92 degrees here and sunny and warm in the Rutherford AVA of Napa Valley. The sky is bright outside, it's harvest season in Napa Valley, and the wines are plush with clusters of uh, sweet and mouth-popping grapes. As Robert mentioned, we are in the tasting room of Beaulieu Vineyards, which is in the Rutherford sub-AVA of Napa Valley. And just a reminder about AVAs, which we talked about more extensively in episodes one and two of Sip on This, AVA actually stands for American Viticultural Area, and what that means is Appalachian, or unique growing region. So Napa Valley is classified as one AVA, and then there are sub-AVAs, 16 of them, um, under the Napa Valley AVA. Um, One of these AVAs is Rutherford, which is where we are today. And the other uh, sub-AVAs that are in Napa are Los Carneros, Oak Knoll, Stag's Leap, St. Helena, Yountville. Howell Mountain, Calistoga, Mount Veter, Spring Mountain, Diamond Mountain, Atlas Peak, Childs Valley, Wild Horse Valley. And I'm so glad we have two guests joining us today on uh, this episode of Sip on This. Robert, who is the wine historian and wine specialist here at Bill U Vineyards. And joining us again uh, for this episode is Ed Lee, who is the hospitality sales manager for Mandarin Program. For the Mandarin Program of Treasury Wine Family. Great to have you back with us again, Ed. And Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do here at Bill U Vineyards. Yes, well, I do um, a lot of the tours. I uh, do a little bit of the wine education. Uh, I've been with the company 14 years. 12 of those have been as the assistant manager. I have stepped down and now do the uh, private tours and uh, private tastings uh, for Bullyu here. And you mentioned that you do a lot of the tours, and Bullyu Vineyards is one of the first wineries circa 1900s that made it through the prohibition. There's a lot of history here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of Beaulieu Vineyards and its famous winemakers? Sure. Um, let's go right up to the beginning. So in 1900, 
Um, a founder, George de la Tour, um, found a house across the street, which we mentioned before, became Bouillou. Um, Mr. Latour uh, in 1903 uh, sold his company. He used to come to different valleys and different wineries and scrape the tartaric acid crystals off the uh, uh, tanks. Uh, so on his way through here, he discovered Rutherford to be very similar to his homeland. A few more trips, like I said, he found a house across the street. It was a four-acre wheat farm. Um, he paid a good sum of money of $10 in gold coins for this four-acre wheat farm. Um, three uh, years later, he went and sold his tartar company and bought an additional 128 acres uh, adjacent to his land. So now it became 134-acre farmland. In 1906, Mrs. Latour, in order to help her husband, um, she was quite a socialite, very active in the Catholic Church. Got him a nice little small contract to supply wine uh, to the Archdiocese there in San Francisco. Um, the also, um, Mr. Latour then put a couple of the priests on his board of directors. And um, that also gave us a very unique place in Napa Valley in that uh, today we own um, small vineyards, but we uh, own them all up and down Napa Valley. Um, the church used to own a lot of land in Napa, and uh, so anytime the church needed money, Mr. Latour would get to acquire these different parcels of land. So as uh, that went on until Prohibition, when Prohibition hit, um, Mr. Latour, uh, his contract turned into a huge one because basically what would happen is Mr. Latour would make his wine here, ship it into the city, and then the church distributor across the entire United States. So he quadrupled in size on it. He was able to buy a lot of equipment at uh, low prices because everybody else is, is folding up. Um, he continued to uh, produce this wine for the church until uh, prohibition ended in 1933. In 1934, he decided he wanted to uh, make a world-class wine now. He, his interest still in, in winemaking. He decided to go all the way back to France by steamship to the Louis Pasteur Institute and went in there and says, I want to speak to your best, best student, your top guy here on him. They referred him to a young Russian by the name of Andrei Chelichev. Brilliant man, spoke six different languages, French being one of them, of course, so you can converse with Mr. Latour. Uh, he already had three degrees, eneology, which is basically your winemaking, viticulture, which is the science of the plant, and microbiology. Mm -hmm. Kind of neat the way he brought him here. He goes to Mrs. Andre, I understand you're still studying to become a famous winemaker here in France. But as you know, there's already several famous winemakers. Uh, here in France, but if you would come with me to California, you could be the first famous winemaker. Sure enough, when he arrived here early in 1937, he was the first formally educated winemaker in Napa Valley on it. Um, when Mr. Chalachev arrived, we had just picked our grapes, because I says he arrived here early 1937, and we just picked our 1936 vintage of Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, we always pick that in October, so the last of the grapes that are picked. 
He worked on that wine. It was ready in 1939. Mr. Latour tasted this wine and said, Andre, this is absolutely fabulous. Uh, listen, there's an international blind test competition at a world exposition in San Francisco. Um, I would like to submit it. I know it's your first batch and your first time uh, here, but I, I can almost guarantee you we could place. Mr. Chalachev agreed. They submitted it. It did not place. It took the whole thing, won the double gold. So that wine became uh, BB's first wine to win the international blind test competition and the first designated reserve in the entire United States. Now, Mr. Latour um, didn't want to use his last name because there is another Latour in France, Chateau Latour. Uh, so his label just said California Cabernet. In, in January of 1940, he has a dinner and invites his family and friends and is sharing this prize-winning wine. Just a little fun tidbit back then. It was one of the most, um, uh, most expensive wines out, out there at $1.50. <laughs> um, he then um, also announced that he was very ill and wasn't going to be with him much longer, but not to feel sorry for him because he had reached the absolute pinnacle of his, his dreams. And then sure enough, in uh, February of 1940, he does pass away. So Mrs. Latour takes over this winery and runs it almost for 30 years with the help of her daughter. And she did two things right away um, at the board meeting. She, she tells everybody that she's taking over the winery. Um, she requests or demands a, a healthy, healthy raise of $18,000. And actually the following year she raised it to 21000 <laughs> The uh, second thing she did, she did want to honor her husband. And even though Mr. Latourette said, don't use my name, she went ahead and uh, changed the label and put George Latour on the bottle. Ever since, that wine is one of the most California collectible wines out there. Uh, the George Latour became the first private reserve in the entire United States on it. Um, throughout the years, um, it's become also a wine that is um, the benchmark for Napa Valley cabs. Uh, there's more expensive wines in Napa Valley, and there's wines that you may prefer better. Um, but I still have other wineries come in and do a trade to go back and taste these wines uh, to do a comparison tasting. You mentioned George Latour. You have so many iconic people attached to this winery. George Latour just being one of them, Andre Chalachev being the second person, but those two people really are monumental in transforming and elevating the Cabernet Sauvignon experience here in Napa Valley. And how did those two help create Cabernet Sauvignon to be what it is today? There's a reason why Andre's nickname is El Maestro. Um, he is the teacher, he's willing to share uh, a lot of his knowledge that he brought over from France. So it's not about we hugging on to all the uh, secret knowledge, the secret sauce, but we understand to be the first to, to elevate something, to celebrate Cabernet, just like Andre one day said that uh, Cabernet is made for the uh, design by God and Pinot Noir is for the devil. Uh, Cabernet is, it certainly thrives over here in Napa Valley with this unique climate that we have. 
But we all love Pinots, too. We do love Pinot. I do love Pinots. Among all the great varietals that Beaulieu Vineyards grows over the years, BV has really made a name for itself with exceptional makes of Cab Bernay. And in 2013, your BV Rarity, a barrel selection, received 99 points from Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. Yes, we took the top best barrels, the top 10 best barrels, um, to make this wine. So... um, the winemaker and Michelle Roland got together and literally went through these these barrels to find uh, the right uh, flavor profile, the right structure for this wine to make uh, rarity. That's fantastic. You know, Bolio Vineyards is such a dominant winery in the marketplace. Uh, I see the label a lot in retail stores, but just like Behringer, it's got such an elevated experience that is not only elevated, but also very accessible to visitors and guests here in Napa Valley. Today, we're sitting in the Bullion Vineyards Tasting Room, which is roadside off of Highway 29 in Napa Valley. This tasting room is not in the middle of a large vineyard like other wineries that we have visited and experienced. Tell me about the tasting experiences that you offer here at the BV Tasting Room. So we offer a set of different tasting experience for all of our guests. Uh, they are, of course, today we're focusing more on the Cabernet Collectors tasting. Those who are here for our namesake wine, the Cabernets, the Georgia Tour Cabernet. And we'll talk about something, a little bit smaller production, a little bit more special uh, in terms of its upbringing. But the guests who are just coming here to enjoy and relax the simplicity and charm of Napa Valley, we do offer an amazing patio tasting also that do feature some of the iconic varieties, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, even though Pinot Noir is designed by the devil, we're certainly very proud of our Pinot Noir heritage as well, uh, Merlot and Cabernet tastings. So of course, club members, they get to enjoy a more elevated uh, treat, depending on what we have in the library, depending on what's tasting good right now. Uh, we hand select a library uh, tasting of different sorts, depending on when the wine club is in the mood for. And when we were driving along Highway 29 here, the building outside the exterior is just the wall. It looks like a large, uh, warehouse, but it's the, the, the walls are just covered with large grapevines, grape leaves. Then you pull into this parking lot here, and there's a, a pristine, beautiful building. Uh, you have a, actually a couple different buildings here. The main building that we're sitting in, you mentioned the patio where your members come. Uh, you also have a set, separate room where uh, it looks more like a bar restaurant, where it's more casual and laid back and intimate where I think your members go as well. And inside this room here, we are sitting in a small tasting room, wood table. It's like an Italian Tuscan kind of dinner room with stone walls, stone and concrete walls. Uh, It's very lovely here. Um, Tell us about what we're about to experience here. So uh, in in this case, uh, this is again, kind of our our private uh, tours and and private tasting for this room here. Um, On the norm, we'll do different vintages of the Georges Latour. Um, We do have a small uh, amount of uh, wines that go back to 1970 and then on up. We may have a year or two missing out of there, but all the vintages there. 
Um, on top of that, we can do uh, our special uh, clone tasting. Um, these are not only 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, but they're 100% from a specific uh, subspecies of Cabernet Sauvignon uh, known as the clones. And again, uh, we only make about 10 barrels a year for, for these uh, different clones, which are used to go back later on and uh, blend it into the Georges Latour. And can you talk about, for our listeners who don't know what clones are, can you explain what clones are and, and, and what they're used for and how they're different from just say, oh, this is just a, when you say this is just a Cabernet, why is clone four of Cabernet different than, oh, we're just drinking a Cabernet? Explain sure. that to our readers, please. So probably my, my easiest way, uh, I'd love to explain it this way, uh, so Mother Nature over the hundreds and hundreds of years has gone out on these vineyards and, and tweaked the plants. But let me make you a gardener for a minute and you have this beautiful rose and one morning you wake up and it's got a little different color of flower or smell or even size and you say, oh, I'd love to keep propagating that. But if you take a seed and plant it, it'll change on you. So clone is actually a Greek word meaning twig. And if you take and cut uh, that twig or that vine where the changes happen and you graft it, you can keep it identically the same. So these grapes were discovered throughout the world. Um, example, we use clone four, which was actually discovered in Argentina. So it's also known as the Mendoza clone. Um, the other one very unique uh, is clone six that was discovered in California and that um, is also known as the Jackson clone. The sizes are about the same as far as the clusters, and the berries are about almost the same. Maybe clone six might be just a tinge smaller. The rule of thumb is the less fruit you have on the vine, the more intense everything is, more um, concentrated. Um, clone six, when you look at the cluster versus the four, it looks like it's almost uh, has a defect to it. The berries are very scattered. They, they hardly touch each other on it. So very, very limited. Um, you're very fortunate to get maybe a ton to probably no more than a ton and a half of the clone six. But in the mid 80s, we did a uh, clone tasting. Uh, we were looking for something that produced uh, less fruit, but um, viable on it and uh, those two are one of the outstanding ones that, that came out of that, that test. I'm no scientist, but what I have heard from my various tasting experiences in Napa is if you are cloning or if you're grafting a vine and you cut it at a certain point, you can actually change the varietal of the grape, is that right? No, that if you cut it and graft it, it keeps it identically the same on it. So. If I wanted, if I, Mother Nature came and, and tweaked one of my vines at home and it maybe changed uh, uh, the size or the color or, or something that's just different about it, and I want to keep it identically the same, then I take that cutting where that change happened and then I can propagate it continuously without any change at all. If I take the seed and plant it, it'll change on me. Mm. And on this property, I saw a lot of fermenting takes. So in our three different collections that we have, we have our Appalachian collection, um, 
grapes come in, go through your stainless steel tank fermentation, um, some barrel aging, we'll use uh, three different types of wood, French, American, and maybe a little European wood on it, uh, anywhere from a year to 16 months uh, in the barrel. Uh, the maestro, and that also goes for the Maestro Collection, small production stuff, only available here at the winery. And then, except for our reserve wines, especially like the George Latour, we actually go through four different types of fermentation. Um, of course, we do use uh, stainless steel, but state-of-the-art tanks, computer control, temperature control. Uh, we use concrete tanks. Um, again, computer control, temperature control, uh, control. and then um, barrel fermentation. So we literally take the brand new barrels, uh, French oak, pop the lids off of them, fill them full of grapes, put the lid back on them, and then take them and start the fermentation in the barrel itself. And just recently, uh, our winemaker Trevor has uh, purchased uh, a different shape of a stainless steel tank, more of a square or rectangular one. Um, and that actually changes the characteristic in the wine because as the skins flow to the top, in the little round ones, um, you build up a, a thicker layer of skin uh, skins up there, which means that you have to do more pump over to keep the skins wet, keep down the heat. Uh, the new ones are rectangular, so when the skins flow to the top, they actually spread out over a larger area, meaning that you don't have to do as much pump over because it thins out the layer, and you don't have to um, chill it as much because the skins don't trap the heat. Um, so it just gives you a different characteristic in the wine. What characteristics attributes do, does the concrete provide in the wine making process? Um, let me, let's go back to the barrels for a minute. So in a French oak, the wood is, is a very tight, porous wood. So as the air seeps in there, it, um, it, it doesn't soften as much, leaves a bigger structure, more tannins. American oak is very porous, so more air goes inside to soften the wine and um, come down a little bit of the, the tannins. Because we don't do American oak in the um, Georges Latour or the reserve wines, we use uh, the concrete because stainless steel doesn't breathe at all. And so it leaves the wine big, bold, full structured. The concrete is uh, porous enough that it breathes, allows the wine to soften up, um, which just gives you that other characteristic you want. So, when you release your wine, you can blend some of that in. You do get a little pinch of minerality, which is a good thing also, um, but you can make a wine that is drinkable now versus having to put it away for another year or two. And, and you've mentioned structure a lot in some of these podcasts that we've uh, recorded with you. When you say structure, what do you mean? So about the fullness of the wine. Uh, when you're tasting a white wine, especially most of the white wines are gonna be a little leaner, a little uh, smaller in structure. When you're talking about Cabernet, it's bigger, it's fuller. We use the word masculine a lot uh, to describe Cabernet. And the way the wines are shaped or built uh, using different vessels, the stainless steel tanks, um, the cement, uh, the wood, it's gonna uh, shape the wine slightly differently based on the tannin level. 
usually the more powerful, bigger, shorter wines there is going to be a little more tannic. Uh, it's like describing a person, if you will. Pinot Noirs are usually softer, more or less. They're not as powerful. They're as uh, masculine as Cabernet Sauvignon. So they're a little bit kind of softer in the way that the wines are built or structured. So today's going to be uh, a tasting unlike any others that we've done so far because we're going to focus more exclusively on just Cabernets, but various clones of Cabernets. Is that right, Ed? Correct. So why don't you walk us through what you have presented us today? So with the clone four and clone six tasting, and it's going to be a horizontal and a vertical tasting. Horizontal tasting being uh, the wines from the same vintage, but for this case, it'll be clone four versus clone six. A vertical tasting will be the same wine farmed from the same vineyard made by the same winemaker and they're coming from different vintages. Mm. I'm going to rely on you both a lot today to help us describe the and distinguish the, t- the wines. So before we go in, into the tasting, um, if a person has a very sensitive palate, these wines might be a little, little too much of the tannic acid in their mouth. But for a Cabernet, this is the type of wine that you want. You want uh, high tannins. Tannins and fruit together will give you, give you ageability. So if I have a bottle of wine that I want to hold 5, 10, 20 years, I need lots of tannic acid and lots of fruit. Also, if I'm having foods that have a lot of fat, a steak, this is, a, you know, you look at a steak, the tannic acid helps not only cut through the fat and the protein of the meats, but it also helps cleanse the palate. It's kind of the preservative in the wine also. I can open a bottle of, uh, of George Latour, pour out my glass, put the cork, leave it on the counter for tomorrow. It'll be softer, but it won't oxidize. A wine with very little tannins or no tannins, you have to drink it all or dump it out because it won't won't hold up. Let's talk about the wines. So for me, uh, describing the clones, uh, instead of using technical descriptors like different berries, different fruit, I like to go in as uh, describing these wines with personalities. Even though we commonly associate Cabernet being big and full and muscular, almost sounds like a bully. But I think Cabernet, in this case, has some of its gentle side especially in the clone force. Um, to me, they're kind of prettier, more elegant, more floral, more approachable. So that's the one I'm gonna start off with, the clone four 2013 vintage. It's both uh, a year older, and it's uh, the grapes themselves are a little bit more subtle compared to clone sixes. And these grapes are grown where? Uh, the grapes are grown here in the Rofer area, actually across the street, uh, street from where we are. So before us on the table are four beautiful wine glasses. All of them have about an ounce of red wine in them. Uh, at the end of the table, we have four bottles of wine. We have the 2013 Clone 4. We have the 2014 Clone 4. Then we have the 2014 Clone 6. And this last bottle here is the 2013 Clone 6. So we're gonna do, as Ed mentioned, both the vertical and the horizontal tasting. And the first one up is the Clone 4 from 2013. 2013 Clone 4. Uh, 2013 is a beautiful year for the Napa Valley. Uh, there's abundance of fruit. Uh, the yields are relatively high without sacrificing any of the quality. A common joke among winemakers is that they got almost out too much fruit. We don't have enough fermentation tanks to hold all of them. Uh, so we can you really get to pick and choose some of the highest quality fruit to make uh, the 2013 wine. 
um, overall, the 2013 wines are going to be more structured, really, really age-worthy. And as I'm kind of smelling and tasting through this wine, it's got a lot of deep kind of plum, blackberry, fruit going on. There is definitely that classic for me, the clone fourth and a floral note to it. I really enjoy that dried flower and violets personality. The wine is nice and bright right now. It's just developing kind of additional complexity as the wine ages. The colors are vibrant and elegant uh, with a nice clarity to it actually, even though it's a Cabernet. Not over extractive, which is again, something that a lot of winemakers needs to watch out for is when they're making a quality, flavorful, but balanced wine. Mm. Mm. There's a pure Cabernet aroma, bouquet, that I love so much. Very smooth, very gentle, silky. Um, Fairly high detectable acid, but it's not, it is not off-putting. No, not at all. It's actually very easy to drink. 2013 was an, an excellent year. Um, this is uh, the same year that we received um, those 10 barrels that made rarity for us. So it was an excellent year. And um, those Napa Valley is very, very consistent on the weather. Um, but your peak years is when you have an early spring and you have a long, consistent temperature until you pick your grapes on it. Um, you want the plants working all the time. If your plant gets too cold, um, they'll stop working, they'll slow down. If you get them too hot, they'll also slow down, which means they're not uh, concentrating on the fruit. So uh, again, 13 was just one of those great years where nice, consistent temperature, good sunlight all the way through, not a short year or anything like that. Just great weather. The vines in Rutherford, how are they different from other areas or other sub-AVAs in Napa? Well, there's, um, you have the Rutherford Bench, which is considered uh, one of the most uh, premier growing areas in all of the United States for Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, it's known as the Rutherford Bench. It starts somewhere down there by Mandavi and goes all the way up to St. Lena, just on the, the west side of Highway 29. <coughs> Soil conditions, um, harsh. A lot of volcanic ash, a lot of minerals, a lot of gravel, very, very porous. Roots can get down about 25 feet into the ground, um, but they don't touch water. Um, so that stresses the plant out. You also can do that by planting it on the hillside, uh, but we're very, very fortunate we can do it on, uh, on flat land. So not only will they pick uh, up this extra concentration of fruit, they'll also pick up a little distinct um, thing we call the Rutherford dust. Uh, not a, only is it on the um, smell like a little minerally or dusty taste, but also has a really nice fine uh, texture to it. Um, I like to describe it as really fine cocoa powder on the top of your tongue on it. Um, and you go to some of the other appellations and they won't have that. Um, so if you learn to pick up this, this texture, the smell, you can do a blind tasting and say, ah, this is a Rutherford Cabernet. Mm. 
That's what distinguishes it from other Sub-AVAs. Correct. Yeah, because uh, my third sip of it, I did get a lot of the chalky essence uh, that rolled over my tongue entirely, which is that dustiness that you were talking about. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's nice. It's very easy to drink, which I love. So the next then that is the 2014 Clone 4 as well, right? So we can either go both ways. It's a great way for the guests to explore on, on their own to kind of detect some of the nuances. So uh, my, the next move either for me to make is a Clone 4 2014 or the Clone 6 2013. Uh, it's, doing a, we're, we'll first do a vertical tasting compare the two Clone 4s of the different vintages. The Clone 414 for me, just I think a lot of 14s I'm associating with, it's more floral. It's actually very vibrant. The nose and aromatics are very elegant. Especially combined with this Clone 4 uh, variety, I really enjoy that elegance and prettiness. It's not as big, as spicy, as tannic as the 13, I would argue. I get vanilla immediately on the nose here. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Well, that's a beautiful bouquet. And awesome, like baking spices. I get a lot of cinnamon, nutmeg, and the mouthfeel is really silky and smooth. I could uh, going back to 2013 now of the Clone Four. The tannins for me are a little more pronounced in the 13, a little more elegant in the 14, and it just goes to show, even the individual clones, they have their own personality, but the vintage variations are very much there as well. It goes to show our winemaker's uh, ability to be transparent, uh, letting nature take its course and capturing what nature has designed for us. With the 13, I get a little bit more of the tannin, a little bit more alcohol uh, in my tasting. The 14, as you said, much smoother, much silkier, uh, not as uh, robust or pronounced as the 13. So I would say that as, as, as 13 is more of a, a scream, while 14 is more of a whisper. It is much softer. It is more, more elegant, more feminine, um, and it doesn't shout at you. It's just a very subtle, um, easy, you notice, you notice it, but it's not overpowering. And isn't it interesting because in previous episodes of Sip On This, every time we've sniffed and sipped wine, we instantly went to the fruit descriptors. But as Ed said, we're not doing that so much with these various, with, with the horizontal and vertical clone tastings. We're talking more about personality. Absolutely. And it, which makes sense because wine is a living, breathing thing. It definitely is something that actually has a personality thing. And what you taste now is not going to be what you taste in five minutes or in two hours. Year over year, Ed, uh, 2013 to 2014, how do the weather conditions affect the growth of the grape and then the character and the flavors of the grapes? Well, so uh, without going too much into detail, 2013 is a very long ripening uh, season for us. The weathers are warm, but not hot. Uh, when Robert talked about vines get stressed out, when the temperature gets too extreme for us. But in the rougher area, we get plenty of moderation from the uh, Bay Area coming from the south. And that gives a prolonged growing season. The, uh, the drought season, which is actually beneficial for us, really getting the fruit to be concentrated. The vines are struggling for water. Uh, 
so we get a lot of flavor, a great uh, skin to berry ratio. So there's a nice extraction. Um, of course, the challenge and the blessing is that the, the 2013 has a lot of tannin. Uh, you have to really test your patience to lay some of these wines down for a couple more years than your normal wines, I would argue. 2014, uh, that's also the earthquake year. Um, actually, I would say most of the vines are coming uh, out from a long break after the big 2013 vintage. The yields are a little bit lower compared to a 13, but I think I found the tannins to be very manageable. It's very soft, it's very elegant. It really kind of, instead of highlight the, the concentrated fruit notes, there's a lot of more floral, pretty quality, and 2014s are usually some of the more accessible years uh, in a great way. And you know, it sounds almost counterintuitive. You would think the wetter years are better for the grapes because that's just natural for growing. But when it comes to winemaking, drier, more drought conditions adds more stress to the grapes, as you said, which actually makes it more sweet, which makes wine have more character, right? Correct. So in fact, um, as, as you know, we had those um, years of that drought. Um, and those were those are perfect years for us because uh, you, you don't want the grape um, to pick up moisture or, you know, uh, water from the roots into the grapes. It's like taking a, a cup of coffee and rich cup of coffee and adding water to it. Um, and the flavors are all still there. They're just lighter. Um, so if you don't add that water through the root system, through the trunk and into the grapes, you get more of that concentrated uh, flavors and, and tannins and color and, and everything. Love it. Okay, so next up is the 2014 Clone 6. So what distinguishes Clone 4 from Clone 6? So the Clone 6, uh, like Robert mentioned earlier, it's a fairly loose cluster. It's a very low yield. Uh, we talked about the energy, uh, where on a, a watery, rainy year, the vine's a lot of energy to grow its leaves and all that. It's, it's not focusing so much energy on the grape themselves. Uh, now you have a smaller clusters, very thin and loose cluster, now it's getting a lot of concentration, a lot of energy from the vine themselves. You get a lot of kind of fruit for quality, you get a very pure Cabernet flavor, uh, the spiciness, the peppery quality really comes out both the variety characteristics itself and in the rougher dust that Robert talked about earlier. So Ed, you are an, uh, you are a level three sommelier, you have distinguished tastes. Um, when I say distinguished taste, I mean you are able to decipher various characteristics of wine. A more novice wine taster like me, would I or somebody else be able to distinguish Clone 4 from Clone 6? That's a great question. So uh, when I go through these wine pairings uh, with different wines, it's more important to stress the fact that let the wine speak to you. Uh, the wines will have their difference. Let us sit, let us sit, sip and savor the wines. The wines are different because the vineyard the location it, no, we're not expecting to do a pop quiz at the end of the tasting to say how are they different, but we are most certain to make sure that hopefully at the end of the tasting you'll find something that you enjoy the most, or hopefully enjoy all of them. So, so Rob, sorry, Roger. So the the other thing that you know we haven't mentioned yet. So um, Napa Valley has somewhere between 34, 35 different soil conditions. And they, I've heard somewhere between 70, 75 in the entire United States. Um, so there's numerous, numerous soil conditions in the valley, and sometimes even in our 
smallest of the venue, you may have two different lots. So for our guests to try to decipher uh, what, you know, this grape come from as far as what section of the vineyard, stuff like that, it's just, it's way too much. So um, I personally like to educate our guests on how to properly smell for a critical tasting and how to um, taste the wines um, more on the structure, um, what happens to a very young wine and what happens to a, uh, an old wine. So you always hear, well, how long should I hold my wine? Um, my standard answer is until you don't like it anymore because they do change uh, continuously on it. And as we mentioned earlier, even as it sits in the glass, it's going to change on us. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do a color comparison of the 2014 Clone 4 Cabernet against the 2014 Clone 6 Cabernet. And as I hold it up against, uh, as I tilt the glasses against a white sheet of paper, uh, and, and look at the color, I see that the 2014 Clone 6 is a little bit deeper in color than the 2014 Clone 4. Am I seeing that right? Yeah. Absolutely. It looks more saturated. And that's exactly like the visual elements, the visual cues is going to tell you something a little bit different about the clones already right away, being smaller, thinner clusters um, for the clones. Six, it's gonna give a little deeper, greater concentration, and that's gonna be appealing based on the extraction. The color and the tannin comes from the skin. Typically, the general rule of thumb, though there are some exceptions, usually the darker the color, and you can expect a little more flavor, a little more structure, a little more muscle as well. Right, and that's what my mouth is already anticipating before I even sniff right. and yeah. taste it. Yeah. What your appetite? Yeah. The um, <clears throat> other example I like to, to use is uh, the berry pie. So if we take this berry pie, uh, which would be the nutrients in the ground and the moisture and everything, and if just you and I share this berry pie, um, we're going to get a lot of berry pie. But every time we have to share it with somebody else or different clusters, we're all going to get less berry pie. So that's why it's so uh, different between four and six. Six has just a lot less people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. This bouquet is so much, uh, is very floral, got a lot of perfume to this. I'm smelling mm, not as much tannin as I, uh, compared to the clone fours, I think. Robert, as you said this, what are you pulling out of it? Well, the first thing I like, of course, is, is the structure because I can uh, determine if I'm having a steak tonight. Again, I want that tannic acid, uh, depending on the steak also, the nice T-bone uh, versus a, uh, something light, you know, filet or something. I want a little bit more tannins. So on the um, clone six, I do get the darker berry uh, coming out of there. And I get definitely the uh, more structure on it, a little more tannins to it. Um, yet again, it's a little softer than the uh, 13s. It actually surprised me because I was expecting a deeper, heavier wine based on the color. But when I uh, drank it, I actually was pleasantly surprised that it was actually lighter 
than the 2013 Clone 4. Well, that's interesting because we're looking at wine that's not necessarily more or less tannic on an absolute scale, but rather how the wines are coming and presenting themselves to you as a great uh, overall picture. The 2014 Clone 6 has a lot of fruit. It's fairly generous and a lot of this berry pie that it's making me hungry, it's actually feeding and fueling to this wine and adding a lot more body and structure and that velvety coating texture that coats over this seemingly harsher and aggressive tannin. It doesn't look like it's there anymore because there these tannins are embedded in the basket full of berries. You're making me think today. <laughs> which a good I, thing. Which yeah. I love. But here, it's much more structured because we are drinking one varietal, all Cabernet Sauvignons, but all from different years, different vintages, as well as different clones. So we lastly are coming across the 2013 Clone 6. Ed, do you want to describe this wine for us? Happy to. Again, the 2013 vintage, one of those amazing years. There's definitely a lot of concentration we're picking out right off the bat. There's a lot of deep berry notes too at the same time. It's the wines are still very youthful at this point. The oak elements are just spicing up this wine really nicely with that cinnamon, that berry pie flavor that we described so much of earlier. And it's powerful. The wine is saturated with flavor. There's a good amount of acidity in this wine, which uh, suggests a long longevity down the road. The tannins are mouth drying a little bit. Um, definitely take a bite of the cheese afterwards. It's gonna mellow your experience overall. The wine is, uh, I think, really much it is youth right now, and I would certainly appreciate having this one with something fuller and heartier. I love this one. Beautifully soft, well integrated tannins. Um, just again kind of like a dance on the palate very it's it's it feels lighter in body and that's because it's more elegant it's very soft um integration of fruit nothing's really kind of jumping out and saying hey i'm fruit forward it's more balanced which i love this was this has got me thinking today. It's a lot more focused. Yeah, so I mean, this is really, I mean, that's what we call a Cabernet Collector's tasting. It's uh, kind of focused and, but but also keeping it fun, like this using the berry pie to describe it's like it's, it's wine. Like when we take it too seriously, you take the fun out of it. Like, we want us, we want the guests, we want everyone uh, a part of this to have fun, to enjoy. Absolutely. Okay. So at the start of the episode, we talked a lot about the founder of Beaulieu Vineyards, George Latour. Uh, and you have just pulled out its signature flagship wines. Can you tell us what you put in front of us? Yes, so we have a, uh, actually this wine goes all the way back to 1970, so it's, that's when they picked the grapes. Mm. So this is a wine from Andre Chalachev. Awesome. So we're tasting something that um, he, he made himself on it. Um, and back then, of course, he was already consulting. So any of the old-time winemakers in the valley, he was the master. He was their teacher. Uh, so it's so neat to taste something that uh, Andre himself had made on it. Um, flavors are going to be very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to get no more fresh fruit. It's dry fruit flavors. Uh, the nose is going to be different. 
And again, drinking all wines like this is an acquired taste, so that's why I always tell everybody, you may or may not like it. I always recommend the best wine out there for you is the one that you like. So in front of us are two wine glasses. We're gonna do a side-by-side. We have a 2015 George Latour Cabernet. When was this released? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. And then Robert and Ed just put in front of us a 1970 George Latour. Take a look at the contrast in colors here. Obviously the 2015 looks fresh fruit right out of the bottle. And then the 1970, which is older than me, which I appreciate, is more prune in color, more brown in color. How would you describe these two these two contrasting colors here? So red wines lose color, as of course, as they age, and which you'll see a little bit on the bottom is a little bit of uh, sediment, mm-hmm. and those are just uh, color molecules that are attracted to each other, uh, which leaves you the lighter color. They do get a little tone of that orangey brown tone, uh, oxblood or brick color. Um, Versus a white wine, uh, white wines will actually get darker, they'll get more of the gold color. So here, as you can see, it definitely, but if you notice, it's still shiny, still bright, uh, not dull on it. Um, and it's got a really nice, um, on the very top, a layer of clear liquid. We call that either the meniscus or the halo. Uh, red wines are a lot thinner on this, so there's a very thin line or a thin layer, I should say, of the meniscus on the current vintage while it's much bigger on the older vintage. My mouth is watering mm-hmm. even before I have a chance to taste this. I'm gonna do the 2015 George Latour first before I dive into the 1970, just as a cross comparison. But um, how did you preserve this wine uh, from 1970, how did you keep it in the bottle and keep it still drinkable? We keep it in our, uh, our warehouse, um, optimum temperature, um, and even when we bring it from the warehouse, it was just right behind us, bring it into our, uh, our tasting room. We have a library there that dates back from 1970 all the way up to the current vintages, and a temperature control room we call the library. And visitors and guests to BV Wines here, would they be able to come and sample some of your wines out of the library? Absolutely. How often can they? Can you do that? Well, we definitely do it on all the tours. So uh, every tour, uh, I'll present uh, different vintages. So 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and maybe at the end a current vintage. Um, or we periodically will change the menu and have an older vintage in the in our menu. That would make me come here almost every week just to try a different wine from a different decade. Come on your birthday, get your birthday vintage. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> this is so exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, so the 2015, let's take a look at this one. How would you describe the color? So it's gorgeous. It's um, a deep garnet color, almost like when you put it under light and against a white background, it's almost moving toward fuchsia. It's this beautiful kind of pinky red um, versus brick red, and it's just gorgeous and bright and vibrant. Um, Almost too pretty to drink, but we all know that's not true. Yeah, looking at this color again, I think the beauty for George that even though it's iconic Cabernet that has power and structure, it's not overly saturated. There's a brightness to it that I really enjoy. It's also reminding me, and again and again, 15 is also like 13, a very concentrated year. 
we're looking at not really the abundance of yield. The yield's actually one of the lowest in the past five years. But it's actually got a lot of concentration, a lot of flavor. It's so important for the winemakers to know that it's not about over-extracting your berries, but making a wine that's powerful, but also elegant at the same time. And I think uh, Trevor Derling, our winemaker, achieved that for this 2015 vintage. When we're tasting a lot of these different wines, I like to teach all of our guests mm. that for the initial smell, that we do not swirl the glass because you volatize the alcohol and of course, you, you, you're getting that shot of alcohol. Very, very important. 90% of wine taste is done through the sense of smell. Um, Mom used to pinch your nose to give you medicine so you couldn't taste here. We want to taste. The uh, best practice that I like to show everybody is just to take the glass and just roll the stem. And this is called robing. So you just coat the inside. That way you don't volatize the alcohol. You keep it at that angle, turn it around, and smell and you get more of the fruit versus and plus your nose is only probably about an inch and a half away from your wine versus swirling it getting a puff of alcohol and your nose is four or five inches away from your wine you're absolutely right and i've heard it both ways but i think the smarter people like you robert tell us don't swirl first because you're going to get a different experience a different aroma different bouquet um and you're probably right in that sniff it first before swirling it to get that first impression, taste it, and then do a second impression by swirling it and then sipping it again. Right, that's absolutely... And then when you do that, you can also see what aerating the wine does to the wine. I get vanilla immediately on the nose, um, and on the palate, I get... um, I get some cherries. I get a lot of red fruit on this one. And I also get vanilla kind of mid-palate toward the finish. And now for the gem here, the 1970 Georgian Tour. Boy, oh boy, I can't wait. My mouth is savoring. Yeah, excited to try it. Yeah, cheers, let's drink. Cheers. Cheers, huh? Cheers, Robert. Cheers. Mm. How would you describe that aroma? I get uh, either the three main ones is port, mm-hmm. sherry, or cognac. And Ed, when would you drink a wine from the 70s? When would you appreciate this? Ooh, I mean, I would say this wine's uh, to the point I wouldn't pair with any food. Maybe a couple of smoked cheeses uh, at the end of the evening uh, instead of It'll be a great replacement for your regular digestive, your sherry, your pour, your whiskey, cognac. It has a lot of like a smoky quality to it, kind of savory, kind of dry plum as well. There's surprisingly still a lot of fresh acidity left in there. There's much life in this wine. Uh, some obviously, depending on personal preference, might not recommend aging for longer, but I think that's something that you really enjoy and something that's been aged and preserved for 45 years and we can still enjoy indulging this. The oldest one that I've drank is 23 years, and this is about 45-ish years or so. 48. Uh, 48 years? Wow, here we go. Mm. Surprisingly elegant. Wow, that is something to be savored. 
and something to be appreciated. I think that the taste, uh, looking at the color based on my previous experiences with older wines, I was expecting more of a prune juice, but this is actually quite lighter in flavor. Um, to Ed's point, yeah, I still get a lot of that fresh uh, freshness out of this wine, even though it's 48 years old. Um, it, it's, it's held well over the years. This is something to be treasured. It Absolutely. really is. This is, uh, you know, uh, I believe in the idea that every night is a special occasion, mm -hmm. but I would drink this on a, on a Saturday night knowing that it is special and making it into a special occasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great that you say that because that's usually what I recommend to our guests is uh, we get a lot of them saying, oh, I'm going to hold this for a special occasion. No, no, no. When you open it, that'll be your special occasion. Thank you. I say that all the time. <laughs> I love that. I tell it to people every day. I love that. I would suggest you guys all come to kind of experience uh, the clone the clone tasting. Most places in Napa do not do a tasting of various clones side by side. So to get that education, that is very unique and that's unique to BV or Bull U Vineyards. So I would suggest you come and take Robert up on his offer to teach you that. Here in Bolu Vineyard, we do exactly just that. We focus on Cabernet. We do a couple other varieties to keep things interesting for other people who are looking for beyond the Cabernet experience. But if you're a Cabernet lover, we're here for you. I love it. I am a Cabernet lover, and I would come back here just for the Cabernets. And I would also come here, as, as Robert talked about earlier, to sample the various library wines uh, from the various decades, just to get a, a unique perspective on how wines grow uh, and age over years and decades. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Robert. It's been a great day here My with pleasure. you. It's been a great tasting experience at Bolu Vineyards. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. If you'd like to visit Bolu Vineyards, their address is 1960 St. Helena Highway in the Rutherford area of Napa Valley. And their phone number is 707-967-5243. Their website is bvwines.com. So thank you guys both so much for your knowledge and for your time today. We really enjoyed this tasting. It was fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sip on This. You can continue to learn more about wines in Napa Valley by listening to our podcast. So please remember to subscribe to Sip on This and check us out at siponthis.org where you can see pictures from today's tasting experience. But until our next podcast, thank you guys so much for listening to Sip on This. And I'm Janae Gaither. And I'm Roger Chung. Remember to live peacefully, productively, and deliciously. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers. so much. Cheers.